Donald Jeffries Show. And welcome to the Donald Jeffries Show. I'm Donald Jeffries. Uh, we're doing a little bit different format today. We have a great guest, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, but he's coming on in the second hour. His schedule didn't permit him to come on at uh, the first hour. So we're going to open up the phone lines for the first hour. Uh, we'll, do, we'll flip-flop the uh, the usual format here. The, that number to call is 319-527-5016. Again, it's 319-527-5016. Talk about anything you want. Uh, <clears throat> Obviously, we'll be talking a lot about the COVID and the uh, the pandemic and everything during the second hour. So, we'll, you know, there's, obviously, there's always uh, a lot of stuff uh, going on. Uh, earlier today, I was uh, tweeting a little bit out there. I t- tried to uh, use Twitter a bit more since it's allegedly opening up, but uh, <laughs> I don't really think it is because I uh, – I had it, you know, I was, I was basically, uh, I don't know if you guys heard this story or not, but it's one of, one of these typical, these idiotic stories that happened. Uh, here, the, the team formerly known as the Redskins, which we call them the, the, uh, uh, the commanders now out here. And of course, I'm, I'm trying to start a, a movement to call them the commies. I think, the, I think that's a great nickname for the commanders. Uh, uh, so far, people that hear it like it, but so maybe it'll catch fire out there, the Washington commies. So uh, the, uh, the commies defensive coordinator, Jack Del Rio, who has been around the league a long time, uh, he he apparently was on Twitter tweeting out his thoughts on the uh, the January 6th uh, show trial that they're going to have tomorrow. And he, uh, of course, did the usual comparison that so many of us have made between the Black Lives Matters demonstrations. And, you know, you, you know that argument. But um, so uh, at any rate. And it doesn't even matter what he, what he says or anything. But it's, again, it's, I'm a free speech purist, so he's catching hell naturally. And uh, I was listening a little bit while I was driving around. I don't listen to the radio much, but I was actually driving around a little today. So listening to the sports uh, talk radio and the news talk radios, they were. Uh, this is the big story, you know. And it, basically, the underlying premise is again, he has to be. He has to. Be, he has to go because he expressed his opinion. And I just, I, I just, I'm just amazed. And so, of course, I tweeted out that on Twitter. And uh, so one one guy, you know, immediately jumps in and gives the familiar the familiar argument, which I've heard many times, is that you know, free uh, free free speech has consequences. And I, I always ask the people, and they say, okay, okay, what do you mean by consequences? And then who determines what the consequences are? What does that mean? And uh, of course, calling him racist and you know the typical names. And I said again, who who decides who a racist is? How do you define that? And who, you know, same thing with disinformation or misinformation or, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, this is just a terribly slippery slope. So my prediction is, this happens in all these cases, he will eventually be fired or resign. And he will issue, still issue an obsequious apology that isn't the least sincere and is meaningless, pointless, and doesn't affect the, imp- the outcome at all. He'll still lose his job. He'll still be ostracized, and he'll never work in football again. If that's the case, I don't think he escapes it. None of these uh, uh, figures in sports ever do. <clears throat> Just like in uh, <clears throat> uh, the political world at large, if you say something that uh, is considered beyond the pale, and there's enough of an out- uh, uproar, that's it. Again, just keep in mind what it was here. He, <clears throat> excuse me, he issued his opinion on uh, <clears throat> Twitter. It doesn't matter whether you agree or not, because I, I, I would not. It doesn't matter. Obviously, I, I agreed with what he was saying, but it wouldn't matter if I did. 
the point was made that it, it, it doesn't matter if his point has no logic to it at all. And I, that's what I've tried to say when people say, uh, well, you know, you can't, it's, uh, it's disinformation or misinformation. And I would say, well, look, first of all, it's, you know, it's, it's a very vague term. And I think, I think all these terms, hate speech, disinformation, misinformation, are all uh, basically thought crime. They're, they're, that's what they're describing. It's an Orwellian thing because it's in the eye of the beholder. <clears throat> you know, misinformation. I mean, to, to all of us in the JFK assassination research community, everything the mainstream media has ever posted is disinformation. Absolute disinformation. <clears throat> but of course, they don't, the majority of people probably don't see it that way. So again, it's in the eye of the beholder. And the idea that... Um, that someone can uh, again. This is this is cancel culture at its finest. And again, this is hardly anybody to feel sorry for. For, for the record, I don't like Jack Del Rio. I've never liked him. He's a typical, you know, idiotic meathead. You know, kind of coach. If you listen to him talk, is you know, rah rah rah. You know, the coaches I still have nightmares about. But uh, he has a right to his opinion, and his. It doesn't matter what his opinion was. You know, unless the the only thing. That should be abrogated at all in terms of free speech. If someone, yeah, someone publicly calls for the murder of someone, okay, then there are laws to handle that. <clears throat> but that's not really even a speech matter at that point. That's a, you know, a violent threat or whatever. But um, it just disturbs me that so many people are, and, and this guy that you know I was you know going back and forth with, he obviously didn't want to an answer because he, I, I, I realized when I went back, I, I couldn't reply to him. It wouldn't let me tweet. And I said, what the hell is this? So I went back to my original post and tried to tweet to that. It wouldn't let me reply to that either. So I had to have another separate tweet and uh, made my point. But again, so that shows that uh, I think Elon Musk isn't there anyhow. But uh, if he ever does get in there, will he have, will he have a uh, any common impact on it? I, I doubt it. And I just – because at this point, you know, when I – uh, it just it's, it's so disillusioning because the left is where I came from originally. And uh, I gravitated to the left because I got excited about, you know, things like Patrick Henry's, you know, I, I may not agree with what you say, but I'll defend to my dying ray your right to say it. I love that. You know, Mark Lane, my mentor, he was a civil libertarian and he that's what he did. You know, he defended Liberty Lobby and it, many people, you know, claimed anti-Semitic unfairly. But of course, Lane was Jewish, but he was their lawyer and he became friends with them. But he, he originally took on those cases because uh, he was a civil libertarian. And then you had the um, the Jewish lawyer for the ACLU back when the ACLU, when I was a card carrying member of them in the 70s, uh, <clears throat> when they were actually devoted to civil liberties, as their name would indicate. And they uh, took up the cause of genuine Nazis. Now, that's not people like me and some of the others that have been called Nazis by people that don't like what we're saying. I mean, we're, we're obviously, I, I'm not a Nazi. Uh, but none of these people uh, that are called Nazis, generally, they recoil at that. And they're not, they're not claiming they're Nazis. These people back in the 70s claimed they were Nazis. They were proud Nazis. They wore uniforms. They Heil Hitler and all that. Uh, and... Uh, they and they also picked a very uh, to provoke the uh, the residents there. They picked a heavily Jewish area of Skokie, Illinois. So this was obviously uh, an act where you could see you know, today if that attempted to happen, would they have a chance 
those Nazis in uniforms would probably just be locked up for being Nazis. I don't know what the crime would be for wearing Nazi uniforms. But uh, <clears throat> at that time, things were freer. The ACLU was an organization that actually protected civil liberties, and uh, they had their demonstration, their kind of pointless demonstration. But uh, <clears throat> things have changed so much because, again, back then, even even somebody like, you know, the Jewish lawyer for the ACLU was repelled by Nazis, but he recognized, hey, they have the right to assemble. So uh, whether it's the January 6th defendants or, everyone, or anyone else, and we all have rights and everybody has free speech. And the problem is that half the country now doesn't believe that anymore. They don't they don't want and I'm not saying that the other half, because, uh, you know, Donald Trump's social media, I think, is already you know, come under fire from some that, you know, apparently you can get banned there. You know, if you if you uh, criticize fearless leader. So uh, I, I don't doubt that a lot of these uh, conservative Republicans might do the same thing if they had the same kind of power. I don't know. I don't know if they'd be quite as punitive, though, because uh, the uh, the left really just at this point, the left that we the woke left seems to really be. Uh, uh, they seem to revel in this. If you if you watch the uh, <clears throat> the TikTok videos are just incredible. It seems to draw these people out. I don't know why <laughs> they make asses themselves, but there was a. Uh, an HR woman who had these kind of Adam Schiff-like demonic eyes, these huge eyes. I don't know what Marty Feldman. I don't know where, where they came from, but she, they didn't look real. But she was on there, and I, was she an actress? Could have been. I don't know. But I'd sure hate to work at the company that she was the HR recruiter for, because she's basically making threats to. I forget was um, oh the truckers. I think it was the, the Canadian truckers or something, and uh, basically threatening them. And saying, don't ever try to apply for a job where I am. And there's a lot of us like that. Just just the maniacal look she gave almost made me again uh, think that perhaps she's a crisis actor, which could be possible, of course. But um, the fact that free speech is so unpopular in America now, really, again, more than half the country, they just they want to. And of course, the right used to be this way. You know, that's why one of the reasons I chose the left as a young guy, because the right was constantly wanting to, back then, they were the censors. They were the ones that, you know, wanted to uh, censor, you know, D.H. Lawrence and uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut and a lot of other writers that were coming out then, uh, and certainly movies. They didn't want any nudity or violence or whatever. So they were the censors, the Catholic League of Decency and all that. But uh, nobody on the left back then really wanted to censor. But the, the things have really, really completely flipped and gone 180 degrees. And uh, now it's the, and again, I don't know that that, I think that urge to censor is probably still there. <laughs> Some on the right, but uh, they, they don't control the culture and the left controls it now, right now. And it's, uh, it's, it's really disgusting because you, you have to watch what you say and you should never watch what you say. Just go watch some comedy from even uh, 10 years or even less, maybe. Uh, ago and just see the kind of comedy that's out there and I was uh, I never watched these shows but the other day like I was walking by and my wife had the Jimmy Fallon on which I, again he's uh, he seems like a, a kind of a nice enough amiable guy I don't know I guess it's persona but good God he's so lame I, I just a little bit I saw he was he was groveling before the the royal family of England he was like making goo-goo eyes at, at, I don't even know what the hell, the little kid of uh, 
William and uh, Kate's. I don't know what the name of the kid is, but I'm sure lots of Americans do. <clears throat> but I mean, we fought a revolution to get away from that crap. But it was it was it was embarrassing. It really was because that guy has talent, but he uh, it, it, he was like a court jester. And uh, but I'll give him the fact he's not as vicious. All the other ones have this kind of mean streak that uh, <clears throat> where they're basically doing the same thing. But they have a mean spiritness in it or a smart assed, you know, way of doing it. But I, I don't know how as a comedian today, how you can look at the uh, we're walking satire. America 2.0 is a walking satire. I mean, we've got we're crumbling in every direction where the world's wealthiest banana republic. There's so many things to spoof. I, you wouldn't know where to start. If, if I, you know, had a comedy, a budget for a comedy show, I'd be like a kid in a candy store trying to figure, wow, you know, how do we write the skits? I mean, how, how do we get them all in? <clears throat> but uh, there's so much fodder for comedy out there. But you have to start with the leaders. I mean, Joe Biden is a walking spoof. Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi. I mean, you start with those three. I mean, geez, Mitch McConnell, uh, Lindsey Graham, Maxine Waters, uh, uh, Adam Schiff, all these people. They're, these are just politicians. They're at, they're just complete jokes, and you could get so much comedy mileage out of them. But every comedian, whether it's Saturday Night Live or late night talk show host, they're obviously uh, forbidden to talk about anything. So how do you how do you possibly ignore? You talk about a giant elephant in the room. Ignore everything that's going on and everyone who has any power, because that's what you're doing. And instead, you—I mean, how how often can you continue to whip a dead horse like Trump? I mean, how at one point? I mean, how much how much more can you get out of him? He's not even—I mean, how many times can you joke that he's playing golf at Mar-a-Lago? I I, I don't—it doesn't make any sense. And I mean, I I saw you know they they keep trying to you know resurrect Ted Cruz to make fun of him. But Ted Cruz again is, is irrelevant. What is Ted Cruz makes a, a soundbite here or there, but he's obviously outside of any influence. I don't understand it. I don't know how you can not, but this, this has been typically, uh, <clears throat> even back when comedy was freer, they definitely concentrated on, uh, making fun more of the right than the left, but <clears throat> the left wasn't, uh, a collective laughing stock like it is now. And again, that number, if you to call, uh, we'd like to hear from you in the first hour is a three, one, Right, right. Three one nine. Chuck has the number, and it's three one eight. It's three one nine five two seven five zero one six. So again, three one nine five two seven five zero one six. And I see Chris Gray's in the chat room, and I see uh, Citizen GX. So <clears throat> great to see you guys. Hope we see some more. So, and uh, as Chris knows. Um, I am finishing up Hidden History 3, more from the American Memory Hole, so I'll be done with that soon. I'm trying to get some more, uh, a few more things in there. Still trying to follow up on a few stories, but uh, it's going to have, and again, this, as I've talked so much about, we didn't get to this stage, this unbelievably dystopian, last days type of uh, <clears throat> stage that we're at, accidentally. You know, there were decades and decades of uh, things that happened that people never, you know, we never did anything to stop. And uh, no, nobody tried ever to, uh, outside of the, the, the people, you know, you had the, less people actually protesting back then because you didn't have the Internet. 
there are more people today than awake than are ever. But uh, the people that it's just the people that were um, committing the crimes, <laughs> the high crimes, and the corruption. Uh, they weren't. They were nowhere near as bad, and they certainly weren't insane. And a lot of the people in charge today, uh, they they really are certifiable, and uh, that's why we we face a much you know, more daunting task. To use one of my friend Bob Wilson's favorite words, daunting. Uh, when you we try to take on uh, not only the corruption, not only the incompetence, but the madness. It's another uh, very uh, dangerous ingredient that's been added to this stew of the people that are uh, misruling us now. They are absolutely and, – and just consider all those young girls you're seeing on TikTok and Instagram or the young transgenders and all those people. Uh, they're gradually gaining power. They're uh, – the people that are being educated in college are largely coming out as, uh, you know, really, you know <laughs> – uh, what we used to call mental patients, largely. And so you're already starting to see people like that uh, Janowitz, uh, the Mary Poppins uh, woman that was in charge briefly of the Orwellian um, Government Disinformation Board or whatever that Orwellian name was. And they actually dropped it. It was so over the top. But um, people like her that are just uh, – they're trained. They're young. Uh, they don't have any kind of uh, empathy for others. So they'll, you know, we, we used to talk about the, I wrote a book about survival of the richest. Uh, oh, I got a caller. Cool. Okay. We got a caller. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, hello. It's Jimmy James. Jimmy James. Nice to hear from you. Thank you. Good show. Thank you. What's going on? Uh, I was thinking about, oh, boy, you just brought up that lady from the Ministry of Truth there, Mary yes. Poppins. Yes. <laughs> what a farce that was. Yes. Yes, she was. I give her credit, though. She could, she, I mean, her lyrics were just, you know, <laughs> Orwellian, but uh, she she sang like Julianne. She did, she's a pretty good singer. I give her credit. I give credit where it's credit. She gave the devil his due, but... Uh, she she represented the the you know unfortunately the the next generation that's coming up of the college educated people just uh, boy when they get power uh, they're not going to wear it responsibly. If they get that far, I mean, I don't know. They're in power. The whole thing's probably going to collapse. If it isn't already gonna, because the fool in the White House has Alzheimer's or whatever. Yeah. Oh, uh, anyways, I had a kind of a random JFK. Well, actually, in this case, it's more of an RFK question. Okay. Now, uh, I remember once I asked my grandpa about the JFK assassination, and he said, well, I don't know, but I do remember that a few days after it happened, there was a guy on top of the Treasury building that took a shot at RFK. And I've never really heard anything else or more about that. I was just curious if you knew more about that. Well, you know, I've never heard that either. So if if that happened, uh, boy, they they buried it so deep that uh, <laughs> with all the books I've read on it and all the research I've done, I have not heard that. Maybe Chris is in the chat room. Maybe Chris, Chris is uh, just incredible. He knows everything. But uh, I've not heard that one. It's uh, And I think uh, – 
even uh, then they would have had a hard time covering that up completely if, if someone then took a pot shot at, at Robert F. Kennedy. But uh, I have not heard that one. That's foreign to me. Uh, he just, I mean, he didn't care one way or the other, really. He just was saying that it was something he heard on the news a few days after the assassination. Yeah, Chris says he's never heard of it either. Um, yeah, like I said, if, they, if that happened, they really covered that up uh, completely. Not that they wouldn't, of course. We know they cover things up all the time because there were, there were so many things going wrong with the JFK assassination. You know, uh, I've had uh, – we've been working in um, – uh, Chris actually sent me stuff on that and Vince Palarama. There's lots of people that uh, talked about the Secret Service agent in Dallas, uh, Chuck Robertson, I think his name was, who uh, rumors persist that, you know, there were so many rumors that day that a Secret Service agent has been killed. Way too many to not be something there. And the rumors persist that this guy Robertson uh, jumped out. He tried to jump and block the motorcade at some point uh, as they were traveling in Dallas and uh, warned the president or something. And uh, we, the, then from there, we heard that he, that he disappeared. And as far as we know, he's never been seen since. And there, again, there were like four different reports in the records that his family continued to receive his paycheck. So I don't know. Is there, that's, that's, a, that's a tantalizing story. I asked Vince Palarama about it the other day again. He said, hey, he couldn't confirm it one way or the other. It's a tantalizing story, but that's, I mean, there are four different, it's not just one isolated story. There are like four different documents you can find references to it in. But uh, you talk about conspiratorial, boy. And, and there was also a kid that was running, trying to catch up with the motorcade, yelling, stop, stop. Well, yeah, people have said that. And I, I, I did find there was uh, something more tangible. There's a kid in the record, I think it was... Uh, uh, Officer Stavros Ellis that uh, documented this kid that took a lot of pictures, and I'm assuming it was uh, just, you know, still photographs uh, throughout the motorcade. And he was chasing the car, but he was trying to take pictures, and he uh, took pictures of the crowd and everything too. And this guy Stavros Ellis said that the Secret Service outside Parkland Hospital, because he was still taking pictures, and I, we, this kid's never been identified as far as I know, that he saw the Secret Service agent run up to him, grab his film tear it out of the camera and like throw it on the ground and stamp on it, exposing it to light. Uh, just, and he's, he's, he got in a big argument with the secret service that, you know, said, why? Cause the kid of course was upset. He said, why are you, why are you doing the, you know, acting like that? And, uh, uh, you know, ruining the kid's film and the secret service agent basically flexed his muscles at him too. So lots of strange things going on that day that, uh, as Chuck says in there, there's a lot of these things and they, they really are hard to track down, especially you're talking about almost 60 years later, almost all the people are dead and, and something, something like that. Robertson, unfortunately, very common name. So if Vince Palorama couldn't find, uh, find out more about it, I don't know that anyone else can. Hmm. Unless he was the extra service guy that was in the bushes, <laughs> where they well, said someone, they claimed someone was going around showing a secret service badge. Yeah, yeah, there there were people there that uh, Seymour Weitzman, who uh, and and others, uh, Seymour Weitzman later to end up in a mental institution <laughs> discovered by the HSCA. Uh, but yeah, there were there were people that uh, claimed that there were secrets that somebody with secret service uh, credentials. The people were showing up on the knoll, and uh, they know that in the records, at least, all the secret service personnel went to Parkland, the president. So there shouldn't have been anybody there. That's 
Oh, Ocelli yeah, said Alice. Yeah. Everyone should have been on the motorcade, right? Oh, oh, and Chuck uh, should have known. Chuck Ocelli talked to Stavros Ellis. He talked to me. He had a few leads I could not debunk or confirm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's uh, – is that in dispute? That I mean, it's just his word, of course. That's the problem. And he didn't name the kid. He probably didn't find out his identity. But those are the things that really intrigue me. There's the epileptic seizure, of course, source that happened out there. And uh, I really want to get the what, – what I what I found out recently is that um, – Rose, uh, Rosemary Willis and Linda Willis, uh, you know, daughters of uh, Phil Willis, who took lots of uh, important pictures of the assassination. I could not believe I found this Texas Monthly appearance where they uh, were interviewed along with some others, including Jim Lavelle, who of course had a, quite a different story. But uh, they were so radical. And I mean, they were basically they were talking about imposters and they were talking about up to six shots and. Uh, I, I was shocked, and so I, I've been trying to. And Chris, uh, you know, found their phone numbers, but uh, unfortunately, uh, as as happens, is everyone ninety ninety some percent of the people that I've tried to call while researching hidden history three, the phone lines have been disconnected. I don't think that's an accident. Hmm. I think if you if you look up in four if you look this regular four one one dot com random person, I don't think you're going to find that 90-some percent of the numbers that are on 401.com are disconnected. But when they're connected to these events, they are. And uh, so apparently those daughters were talking, but man, they were they were really out there to, to a stop talking, but I really would love to talk because they've done very few interviews. But uh, there's lots of that stuff out there. That's the kind of I, stuff I'm putting in the I distinctly, I remember their dad and their mom and one of them talking on the man who killed Kennedy. And even then, they were very much yes. talking conspiratorial. They were. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, it's, and those are the kind of people that uh, I love talking to. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been talking to uh, Patrick Dean's daughter. Uh, and, you know, for people that I, I, Patrick Dean, I look at Patrick Dean, I think, different than the rest of the critical community. I think he was treated unfairly. I think he was actually a, a helpful witness that uh, they kind of uh, attempted to smear. And, uh, you know, I think they tried to kill him, too. He was in a he was in an accident that uh, he probably should have died. He survived, but he was disabled, never quite the same again, had to retire. But uh, his daughter has some interesting things to say, too. Huh. Yeah, I never, no, he did not, I believe him when he says Jack Ruby did not walk through this ramp. I absolutely believe him. Right, well, if you look at the, and that's what, yeah, well, that, that well, that what attracted me attention is that, you know, um, if you read, as, as I have, and most people haven't, but if you take the time to read, go through this, it's it's really boring. Most of it is really, really boring. The testimony mostly is irrelevant. They're not asking any questions that are pertinent. They're not trying to find the truth. And you get, you know, Dean Andrews, who's the father of my friend, Dean Andrews III, and that's my friend in real life now. But uh, his his testimony is very interesting. He's got beatnik, you know, lingo, and he's really, I got to find out the guy who killed Oswald. And that's cool. But the, probably second to him in terms of, of just human interest is Patrick Dean's second testimony when he requested that the he uh, come back and testified before Earl Warren himself, and he he basically reported what you said. He said, you know, uh, Bert Griffin. You know, he basically accused Bert Griffin of threatening him and saying he 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 he'd be willing to help him and he's going to need some help. And uh, that Bert, Bert Bert Griffin went off the record and said, 
Jack Ruby did not tell you he entered through the Main Street ramp. And more importantly, Jack Ruby did not tell you he planned this killing, you know, before. And uh, this very really compelling stuff. But for whatever reason, the critical community uh, wants to make Dean out to be a, a liar or something. I don't really understand it. No, I think I agree with you. I think you seem very credible as opposed to some very shifty officers who do not seem credible. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, especially we consider what we had out there to choose from. There wasn't, uh, you know, a lot, that, not a lot. That sergeant, that sergeant takes the cake. Do you realize that he was literally hired one month before the assassination? Which which sergeant is the this? The one that's gifted. The one that gave all the press conferences, uh, the number two guy for the HR people. Mm, I'm not sure. A, a Dallas police sergeant? Yeah, he gave the whole biography of uh, Oswald within two hours. Well, that got out to the press. I don't know. So, uh, Chuck, do you know who he's talking about? No, he gave, yeah. We talk, hmm. We're talking about Revel, or are we talking about, uh, which one are we talking about here? Uh, let's put it this way. He was at all the scenes of the murders. Tippett, uh, all of them. Oh, Berkwin. yeah. No, I don't know that he was a sergeant. Uh, he was, I think oh, he was. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah? Oh, yes. He was installed as sergeant right there. I remember all the interviews I've watched. One month. Uh, what is that guy's name? Sir? Oh, I, I know. You're, I, I can't. You're talking about the guy that was leading Oswald out of the theater, too, and interviewed him in the car. I can't. I can't. I can't think. I think that's uh, who you're talking. Bennett. Was, that, it, was it Bennett? Was it Bennett? No, no. He worked for the newspapers, and then all of a sudden, bam, he's a cop. Yeah, well, all, all of a sudden, bam, he's a cop is is, is difficult. There was people in and out of DPD. There's over a thousand people employed. Um, yeah, because yeah, it's a you know some of this stuff becomes a blur after a while. I'm trying to remember the name of the auxiliary officer who was on the other side of the ramp from Ruby. Supposedly, uh, he was a black officer, which was uh, rare. I'm trying to remember that guy's name. Uh, I don't know. I just associate Roy Vaughn with that that whole thing, but uh, yeah, I don't, no, I don't but know. there was an auxiliary officer who was black. Who was on the other okay. side? Who they 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 who yeah. said basically the same thing. I didn't see Jack Ruby at all, and he mm. was uh, d- sent to guard that ramp. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. So you know, there, there there's a whole lot of stuff going on here. Um, there is, because but I mean, I, but Dean's testimony is just fascinating because he, he's as I as I as I written, uh, he he's the closest thing that the Warren this may be Marguerite Oswald that the Warren Commission had to a hostile witness because he was saying, Hey, look, they you know and of course Warren, none of those people were interested in what Bert Griffin said or whatever. It's like, you know, they, why is he, you know, why is he telling the witness what he saw or what he heard? I mean that can't be right, but they had no problems with it apparently so Well his buddy was uh is his name Hill? I think his but his buddy was. Oh, like, Hill, Hill, Hill. Yes, Hill. There's Hill. God, what's that guy's name? Hill. Yes, there. Hill, Hill was right there and all that. Yes, I, I don't know that he worked in media before. And Westbrook yes, was a he was a newspaper man and was literally hired one month 
before this. I have to look into that, Jimmy Jean. That's uh, that's that's that sounds fascinating. I don't know. Escaped. We did. I didn't know that. And Westbrook, of course, I'm familiar with. Is he was uh, the scene of the alleged two wallets and everything at the Tippett scene, right? Westbrook was we, Westbrook was right in the center of that. Yeah. Is is his name Westerbrook? Right, Westerbrook. Is that it, or is it Westbrook? Is it Westbrook think, or Westerbrook? I think it's I think it's Westbrook. I think. Yeah. Okay. It's Westbrook's the captain, and then. I think Hill's the sergeant. Uh, Westbrook's not the, uh, the, the well, he's not the head of the homicide. I know that, but... Uh, no, he was the head of HR, and he was also the reserve commander for the blah, blah Army Intelligence Group. Oh, yeah, but there was a bunch of guys that had Army Intelligence connections, you know, in in the DPD. You know, that, that's another thing. It's like, oh, he was connected to Army Intelligence. It doesn't mean much. This is another job for most of these guys, you know? It becomes well, a. Well, he did the hiring. The thought is that he was hiring, you know, everyone from his reserve squad into the Red Squad at the Dallas PD. Eh, well, but that's the thing. I mean, just trying to get your buddies in. I mean, there, there's groups of Marines that came in together uh, in the DPD. There's all kinds of former military guys who are bringing in their, their buddies and their fellow Marines, their fellow. Uh, Navy guys, their fellow Army guys, not unusual is what I'm saying all across there. But yeah, absolutely. I think he's a weirdo. How come Westbrook was driving around doing police work anyway? Well, there's a whole bunch of questions as to why somebody was driving around in different places, including <laughs> Tippett himself. Uh, you know, the whole lot of stuff doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. oh, what is it? But Seymour Weissman, you know, my favorite police officer, trying to add a place. I mean, here's a. I think he was a New York Jew who had been like in the uh, the garment business. I think you know. There's questions. You know, supposedly he was a gut expert. On some people say not, but it it's it seems like a strange transition to go from the garment district to being part of the Dallas police force. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one looking at it that way. But I I always thought he and of course he is he was in all the hot spots. You know, he was and of course he ends up in a mental institution where the House Select Committee describes him and. Uh, I think he was one of the most interesting characters, and I, you know, I tracked down his nephew for Hidden History, and uh, the guy just, I think it was Larry, Larry Weitzman, I think his name was, and he just yelled at me. He just kept saying, I don't know nothing, I don't know nothing. I'm like, a hundred times in a row, he just kept screaming that, and I said, whoa, calm down, man. It's, uh, you know, it's been all, it's been 40-some years at that time, and, and you can see he was still... Scared of something. See, but again, it's not necessarily scared either. It's harassed because some of these people, including here's where I'll defend Dean, even though I don't think of him the same way as you, is that people tried to hang a lot of stuff on him. You got another call, by the way, so um, I don't know if you want to take that. Yeah, yeah. Let's. uh, uh, You got anything else, Jimmy Dean, or or I'll take this next call? No, I'll take the next call. Okay, brother. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. Take care. I will take the next call. Caller. Hi. Hello. This is Cirque Savard. How you doing? <laughs> Cirque Savard, I know all about you. Former hockey player. Related to Demis Savard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, them Timbits up, up north. Wait a minute, wait a <laughs> no, minute. There, there, there is a guy continuously messaging me with that name. I, I have no idea who he is. <laughs> I, really, I'm serious. They're, they're, I'm getting all kinds of messages and requests to do stuff on the show. It's like I'm being barraged by Cirque Savard. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm really. Is that you? Oh boy. Yeah, is that you doing that? Uh, uh, uh where's Jimmy James? Okay then. <laughs> well, Cirque, what can we do? What's what's on your mind today? Fine, sir. 
Well, anyway, well, since you're bringing up uh, JFK, and I know you love speculation so much. Yes. What are some of the most wild speculation about what went on in Dealey Plaza? You know how uh, you don't, yeah. I know you don't like to speculate, but let's just say for the, the sake yeah. of uh, a right. minute or so, what's some well, of the, uh, the wildest and some of the, hmm, maybe that could be possible, things you have heard? Well, the wildest speculation is that a, uh, a minimum wage loser, uh, you know, took a, took a gun with an effective skill. Oh, no, uh, yeah, I okay. know. That's a lot of it. No, but, I know yeah, that. It, 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 I it, mean, it, like, it, the, <laughs> I mean well, stuff like the epileptic seizure or, right. like, the idea that there was microphones all over the plaza right, or the right. different uh, paint on the in the plaza, too. Yeah, there are reports. I mean, there's, you know, there were even, I was intrigued by reports. Of course, they, they end up, you can't really get a credible source for him. The reports that uh, they were rehearsing JFK's funeral under under, under uh, McNamara before he was killed. I mean, really? Yeah, that's what I've heard. But uh, again, th- and those are the things that intrigue me because I, I'm different from most of the critical community. I don't think this thing was anti-Cuban, uh, anti-Castro extra, exiles. I, it certainly wasn't the mafia. I don't think it was renegade elements of the CIA. I think this was a plot at the absolute top levels of power and oh, I, th- yeah. I think I don't, I don't think, you know, so uh, and most of the people in the community you have the David Talbots that throw out Alan Dulles. Yeah, Alan Dulles, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know, was, knew about it and probably was the leader of the uh, of the Warren Commission in terms of controlling that. But they didn't have much to control because look who was on it. And uh, but yeah, I think I think there and there are All things the that Cuban stuff is boring to me, for, quite frankly. And me, too. And, and, there, you know? and I've I pointed out many times because so many people and I understand uh, my belief is, and again, I don't, I don't theorize, but I think Jim Garrison was right that Oswald was on assignment that day at the time of that uh, before yeah. the assassination, and he was working for the FBI, CIA, Naval Intelligence, somebody working some kind of intelligence capacity, and he was told yeah. to infiltrate a group that he that was uh, planning to kill the president. I personally think the group he infiltrated, Clay Shaw, David Ferry, Guy Bannister, Jack Ruby. Uh, several of these, Eladio Del Valle and some of these anti-Castro Cubans. I think that group he infiltrated. They thought they were doing the same thing, right? Right, right. I think they pro- they might have all been undercover agents. We know Ruby was. We know Shaw had yeah. intelligence connections. So that wasn't obviously the real conspiracy. So Garrison found, I think, the ground-level conspiracy. But uh, I don't. But for some reason, people want to think that Cuba was a motive. And I point out many times, okay, let's say, okay, let's say they killed Castro because they killed Kennedy because he wanted to uh, have rapprochement with uh, Cuba, which he did. Well, what happened after the assassination? There was no, uh, Johnson didn't launch another Bay Pigs, nothing. Cuba died as campaign issue. So, I mean, they took it. green. That was it. But what did change? Vietnam? Just like if they went with uh, with Val with Valley uh, Thomas Arthur Valley, if they had gone with that, they would have went uh, with the John Birch stuff. Yes, exactly, and that's and that's uh, you know we talk and, and Chuck knows uh, Bob Wilson and this guy on his show uh, that I was participating with uh, the other day, but it's pushing the General Walker did it and stuff. But uh, yeah. I just I just uh, you know General Walker was a. It was an, an unpopular figure in the mainstream back then. The mainstream of, of his day hated him. They, he was ostracized. He was a general, but yeah. he wasn't welcome. The John Birch Society was never welcome in proper society, even then. So if they had been the ones to do this, uh, then 
who, why would why would CBS News and, and and the New York Times, the Washington Post, why would they have all covered up for that? They would have loved to have uncovered exactly. that. But uh, so I think you just look yeah, at and who, the FBI are infiltrated John Birch Society from almost the beginning, right? So right, exactly. They infiltrate all these groups. So I mean, I I think that. Uh, but my favorite speculation, obviously, is that uh, if I speculated, I, I think it's, you know. It, yeah, there was another gunman, but he had nothing to do with Oswald because that one's laughable, too. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, But, I mean, I, I don't discount, and I call these people neocons. I, I coined the term neocon researchers, and they dominate the community now. And they spend all their time, literally all their time, uh, going really? after people that are pro-conspiracy. They don't spend any time on building... Well, they do. Like, you had the whole group in Australia that is... That well, hates. no, I haven't really paid attention to the, the, the JFK research community. Just frankly, oh, they're, they they're, just they're, bore me to tears. So I, I haven't noticed that. Well, you got this whole group out there, ROKC, Reopen Kennedy case, that hates me. I mean, they absolutely hate me. And uh, and again, I, I, yeah, I don't know why, but they, they just do. And it's a personality conflict they get with their leader, uh, Greg Parker. I think, but uh, you know, oh, Bart, yeah. Bart, Bart Camp over there, who's in that group, who hates me as well, who's, you know, he's getting a little bit of a, a name and, and respect. But I, I just, I just told people, look, what I, are they doing like kids, kids stuff? Yes, yes, like, they, uh, like they used poop to, on your picture. Yes, or yes, they, like yes, they used to do that, and they just, you know, make just absurd little, like basically like drawing mustaches on pictures, like little kids used to do that. They did to me, and they, they, I, I wasn't the only one. They ridiculed lots of other people too, but. And it was all because, again, I, I, I uh, when Parker was on the forums, I just tried, I just called out his uh, behavior, you know, calling people names yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. I said, you know, let's, let's. I always, you know, they, and they started calling me Miss Manners because I wanted civil discourse, and uh, so that's uh, that's the problem there. But these these guys, their entire thesis is built around prayer man, and you know, prayer man is yeah. prayer man is, and I, I and I'm saying, look, I, I'm not. Saying it's not, it's impossible, and I would love for that figure in the corner, not the Altkins photo, which of course again everybody says is love lady. Tell me I, the, the the guy with the girl uh, at the fire escape, like out back or whatever. Is that the same thing? No, 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 no. This is it, you can you can see it in the background of the all of the doorway. It's like he's he's over in the corner, and uh, it's pot, but it's so indistinguishable. You know, you have arguments whether it's a man oh, or a woman. Yeah. But the, but these okay, guys. Yeah, I, now, these are the same guys who, uh, you know, who discount all the Oswald impersonations. They think Sylvia Odio is incredible, the most credible one of all. They don't think people, no one was impersonating Oswald. They hate, and they really hate John. They probably hate John Armstrong more than me for some reason. They hate the Harvey Lee thing. But they, oh. they built their entire thing on reopen Kennedy case on this very indistinct figure that you can't. And that's the same thing with Badge Man on the grassy knoll. You can't get good enough quality to see anything there, and I, that's why I always stay away from that because you can't. People see what they're going to see. It's like a Rorschach test, and you can't. And the idea that they build everything around. There's a guy now that posts on the forums constantly, and uh, he's he's um, apparently he's been hired by Ruth Payne or something because it's one thread after another to say Ruth Payne's treated unfairly, but he gives the game away because he mentions ROKC and he talks about prayer man. So again, this which is really it's like when Gary Mack gave up all the conspiracy evidence, but still believed in Badge Man and acoustic evidence. Which yeah. are, those are, those are two of the weakest evidences for conspiracy. But you know, an Umbrella Man, Stephen Witt, and there are no mysterious deaths, and there wasn't a hole in the windshield, even though they had two different people who claimed they put a pencil through it. Uh, the credible witnesses. The picture. 
Yes, well, they're well, you know, it's a it's a spiral nebula. I mean, you have all these people saying, "Look, you have tons of people that saw it," but the point is, everything they Swamp do, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Everything they do is to try to minimize the case for conspiracy. That's what neocons do, and, jo- and Josiah Thompson's in that category now too. I mean, I argue with them, you know, six so seconds. They, so they, they basically they did what they did with the uh, 9-11 thing with the uh, holograms and all that crap. Is what it sounds like. Well, in that case, yeah, you had the Fetzers and people like that that, uh, yeah, started really speculating and saying there were the towers were empty and all that stuff. And who knows? Nukes but, and all that. Yeah, there's, yeah. It, and that's why in that thing, it's like, look, I just, I'm saying it, it wasn't 19 crazed Arab hijackers with box cutters and plastic knives led by the tallest guy right. in the Middle East from a cave. You know, that, it definitely wasn't that. So, okay, so that Bush's didn't happen. business partner, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, they, and they they flew around for like an hour and a half, and <laughs> this biggest uh, defense system the world has ever seen did absolutely nothing in response. So yeah, uh, Pentag- that's yeah, you, Pentagon. Like, give me a break. Right, and that so you know that is impossible. But what happened? I don't know. Same thing with yeah. Oswald. They lied to you. They spent decades and a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort. A lot of people have died. To cover up that lie uh, tells me, I, yeah, I don't think that, you know, and again, I'm not all those JFK assassination witnesses killed by karate chops when they exit the shower. And you got the Dorothy Kilgallen, yeah. the, the guy, Mark Shaw, who wrote a book about it. And, and it's a good book. It documents that Dorothy Kilgallen was murdered. But he thinks Oswald killed JFK. It's like, you know, I can't interview that guy. It's like, wait, what, you know, what do you? What is the point of your book then? You know, so why would they kill yeah. Dorothy Kilgallen? But they didn't. I mean, it's just, it's just so stupid. But that's it makes no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense. Same way the you know the ROKC people. It makes no sense to be saying there were no Oswald impersonations. There were uh, uh, now the other thing they tried to say is that the uh, the the phone call that Oswald made. Uh, uh, Alvita truly truly talked about the, the last phone call. We was uh, going to uh, oh god, what's the guy's name? And uh, Heard John Heard in North Carolina. Yeah. And uh, they yeah. purposely didn't let it go through. Well, no, now now the, the, the neocons don't think that happened. They claim, oh, that's not true. So again, anything that smacks of conspiracy, they they uh, right. debunk. They debunk, except for this absurd yeah. prayer man thing. And I wish Sean Murphy, Sean Murphy's the guy. He used to be a good poster years ago when he's at the forums. He's disappeared. And I, what's amazing is oh. that he's disappeared once he's he's this theory of prayer man has uh, caught fire with this one one yeah. group over there. So uh, why don't you sh- appear and and talk? I've tried to message him on the education forum. I don't have his email, and he you know he doesn't reply. So uh, I really well, I don't. Know. A couple of the nine uh, eleven people they uh, they put out a theory and then they just disappear off the planet. Yeah, that's happened everywhere. I, I was uh, asking DB Kid uh, about Patrick Briley, and she said no, nah, he because he did a lot of good stuff, but. Said he's you know kind of backed away from it for his family and stuff, and that seems to be the case with a lot of these people. I don't, I don't really know why, but uh, yeah, you know, Don, since you, since you yeah. invited me onto the show earlier and uh, you're, you're talking about this, I, I got to ask a question to both of you because I often get hit with the uh, accusation that all I do is kick out the legs from under other people's conspiracy theories. I okay. do it a lot, and I'll do I do it a lot because their evidence is bad. I mean, it's just bad evidence. And the funny thing is, th- this prayer man thing, not on board yeah. with it. I can't yeah. get on board with it because they've got nothing. They, they Look, yeah. look, this one says he was outside. Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's yeah. nothing. You know, you yeah. brought a badge man 
<clears throat> okay, Badge Man doesn't exist outside of the Mormon photograph. Right. So yeah. there are ways to cross-check that with other photographs. How come we don't see them anywhere else? Well, but you have uh, everything, all the photos are altered. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm... Yeah, but I'm that's the thing, that, is that, yeah. see, okay, and, and I'll throw something at you here. The, the, the continuous bringing up, which was fair enough for, like, somebody like Mark Lane earlier to say, oh, there's Secret Service agents everywhere. Eh, okay, but if you actually read all the testimony, and I'm not saying that they didn't, because they did, but they missed a couple of things here where you have Secret Service agents talking about leaving the motorcade on foot and running around for a minute. And if you do that and you just imagine they ran from spot to spot, I forget the guy's exact name, I bet you ask Palmera, he'll know. Now, he might not accept it as an explanation, but I bet you he knows about a Secret Service agent who jumped off of a car, because it's not just after JFK's limo leaves, went to different places with his ID out. That's there in the Warren Commission. Now, I'm not saying trust the Warren Commission. I'm just saying do your due diligence before making a statement, right? And yeah. people don't like to hear that. I say, look, I'm not saying that that's absolute proof that there weren't Secret Service agents uh, uh, that were fake. But I am saying this is an explanation. If you can put this guy in some of the spots where people said they saw a Secret Service agent, you have now answered a question, and we should clear away those questions, not add to them with, well, I see this blur in a photograph, and I see... No, you got to put it together with a whole lot more, and there are so many more photographs that you... Oh, exactly. You, you know, like like when they go, okay, so here's Bush in Dealey Plaza. Ridiculous. Right. I'm with you, yeah. You know... And I, I discount all that, too. It's just that the... the, the, the traditional conspiracy episode it originally drew me in the mysterious deaths the umbrella man babushka lady all, all these people it, these sure. are the ones that neocons go after but i'm with you those those other things the picture of george bush that came up later even the tramps i've never thought the tramps were that significant but uh so there, there's lots of evidence i discount too mm -hmm. but uh i just don't know what these people really if you're hanging your hat on prayer man i well, you're discounting all this other stuff i don't get it well that's the other thing is you got there is so much good evidence that has been developed by people independently that that you can say look it, it, nobody can explain this without right. you know really undermining like, you know, for instance, and I, I point out Sherry Feaster all the time, and, and I know some people didn't like her or whatever, but uh, here's a fact. She had a reasonable argument that nobody has been able to debunk in her field, even after her death, okay, that shots came from the front. Yeah. Very simple, forensic. You know, we, we could get into, well, did somebody shoot from the knoll? Did they miss this and that? You know what? Whether they missed or they, you know, whether whether they fired from there or not, uh, show me the evidence where well, a bullet a landed. Picture of the smoke. There's even smoke in one of the photos. Well, yeah, but uh, okay, but smoke again. You got to you, you, even though yeah, you got to pump the smoke. Yeah, I know. Someone smoking a cigar. It could something. be a lot of things. Could be a lot. I'm just saying you got to you got to cross reference this stuff and come up with stuff that independently makes sense. And when you start to uh, again create a nexus and go back and forth and say, well, look, like when I've done this thing about, well, how come you don't have Badge Man in any other photograph, right? Then, yeah, eventually yeah. somebody will tell me, well, the photographs were altered. Okay, right. so right. do you know how well, this yeah. pool of photographs <laughs> came together? Back that up. <laughs> well, back that up because really there, there were people that tried to develop photographs that other people like uh, Dick Sprague, not the guy who ended up heading the HSCA, but Dick Sprague tracked down people who had undeveloped photographs that their photos just didn't come out. That, and and they disappeared. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that, you know, because I don't believe Beverly Oliver, 
I'm pretty sure that Dick Sprague, that Dick Sprague, not the one who headed the HSCA, um, actually tracked down who Babushka Lady was, which, by the way, there's four of them. Uh, There's four ladies Mm -hmm. with Babushkas on in the plaza if you track the arrays of photos. But but that's the thing. And then when you do it, you say, well, look, there's four Babushka ladies, and I've seen really good quality prints of these. None of them could possibly uh, resemble Beverly Oliver at that time. Oh, well, you know, that's fake. She was wearing a wig and, a, you know, and, and uh, extra sunglasses, and she was trying to look fat in her raincoat. And uh, Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like Stephen Witt thing. Stephen you know, Witt. We we'll never know. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. never know. That's a weird thing. But you know what? People do stupid, weird things, too. I don't know how to feel about Umbrella Man. I don't think he had a gun. <laughs> okay, no. but other or than he had that, a flange thing that Bill O'Reilly was pushing. Yeah, what? please. Well, that tells you something right there, right? Bill O'Reilly was pushing yeah. it. Uh, uh, so a- anyway, I-, I didn't mean to interrupt your show, but it's just it drives me crazy when people are like, "Oh, you just don't believe in conspiracy," and I go, "Yeah, I do, mm-hmm. but I don't believe in nonsense." You know, right, right. you got well, yeah, to. So, so do, should we should we go to break now, or they're not showing any signs of calling yet, right? Not yet. So that's also why I'm kind of filling time. I didn't want to tell anybody that, but. Uh, okay. Yeah, because we're, we're waiting for the tip for Peter McCullough, and the, but they're they're probably not going to call in until almost seven, I would think. Well, yeah, can maybe. I leave you with one thing before. Yeah, absolutely, okay. I want I wanted to turn it back over to Chris because you know here's the thing. I know that often I will shoot certain things down, but it's because I, I've got so much dispositive evidence in my hand of like this doesn't yeah. work because. You know, it, it, no, it I just... appreciate what you do. You did that. You did that with the Cobain thing uh, that we did uh, last week, and uh, you made me go back and uh, have to recheck certain things. You know, and well, that, was, and that was good because yeah, uh, I well, wasn't even certain a couple of things. Yeah, yeah, but believe it or not, I'm on your side with the Cobain thing. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, it's no, just I that... understand. Yeah, no, I. Yeah, but I mean, like you know, I should have been a little bit more prepared than I was with certain questions. You know. No, it's okay. I, look, but my whole point is. Test the hell out of it. If your if your theory oh, yeah. is good, if your evidence is good, it will survive a hard test. And I say test it right. all as as rough as you can, as many times as you can, because you're trying to make a counter argument, and your counter argument already is fighting uphill. Make sure you're standing on a sturdy hill as you go up. That's all. I'm. That's that is my priority here. I don't want to have foolish arguments because, again, even earlier on, and other people are married to other people are married to their uh, their beliefs, and they uh, they don't like that. I can tell. Well, that, that that's. Thing, right? You've, yeah, that's the other thing. I make the joke. It's it's you know you you went home with the pretty girl at the bar and you woke up next to uh, the real woman you went home with, uh, and and this is the problem that some people have. You know they thought they went home with a model, and uh, they wake up the next you day and they go, "Ooh, yeah." If you're lucky, <laughs> if you're lucky, yeah. right? It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you had two legs. Um, you know, just saying. It, it's they wake up with it because they have so invested themselves. Now they don't want to let it go. And that's another thing, and that's why the older guard researchers are really, and and here we go, Don, no offense, you're older than me, but people in your age group who are in the research community, they're married to their theory. And that's it. It doesn't matter what you bring them. It doesn't matter. They're scientists, too. Yeah. They're not open to new theories that might disprove their whole careers. Well, because now, now what what did you do waste my time with your last two books, huh? No, they don't want to admit that, you know. Yeah. That's the thing. So, I mean, and, and there are very well, few people in that older age group than me in the community that are not willing to, uh, you know, they, they, like you ask them, have you read any of the new documents? No. Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> 
There's five million new pages, dude. <laughs> you mean to tell me nothing in there is useful? No, it isn't. Okay. Well, I'll, t- I'll, I'll leave you with this, right? Both of you. If you can, search out the tr- the mock trial. You know how they had the mock trial for Lee Harvey in yes. like the 80s? Oh, the yes. laughable one. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a mock trial for uh, Osama bin Laden in November of 2001. And I believe F. Lee Bailey was a part of it. Um, check that out <laughs> if you can. It's uh, pretty eye-opening. Did they really? They, That's they, news they to me. They basically went into how they would prosecute bin Laden at the time with the flimsy evidence that they really didn't have, to be honest. So... Well, it's funny because when right. it comes, well, have a good rest of your show. You know, when it okay, comes to, when it comes Chris. to Oswald, Chris, when it comes to Oswald, Chris, it's really funny because mock trial for Lee Harvey Oswald. I, I always scratch my head because in the seventies they did a TV movie, right, which contained yeah. almost a mock trial of it. <laughs> you have uh, yeah, that's right. Walt yeah, Brown yeah. made a novelization called The People v Oswald. Uh, yeah. you, you got that yep. joke with uh, with Spence and Bugliosi. Uh, yes. You know, who, yeah. by the way, Bugliosi, uh, America's prosecutor, the famous man. Yeah, check into his G's background a little. Kidnapper, too? Oh, yeah, well, uh, uh, kid, kidnapper uh, uh, threw his pregnant mistress down a flight of steps, probably. You know, all kinds of fun stuff. Check out O'Neill's file, okay. which is publicly available. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> loads of things. Yeah, I love anyway, that one about yeah, the... You guys... You guys have a good rest of your show, all right? I, I didn't mean to take up all the time. Yeah, no, I love the one, but just one capper here, Chris. I love the one about he, he thinks the milkman might have impregnated his wife, so he goes and snatches the guy's kid oh, from it? school and uh, <laughs> drops him back off at yeah. you know at the edge of the driveway with you know after taking him to the toy store, uh, literally taking him under false pretense from his school, right? Or maybe it was a girl, I forget. Yeah. But either way, it's like yeah, that's it was a girl, yeah, girl. Yeah. That's and brought her to the toy store. <laughs> brought her to the toy store. I brought her home. Like, hey, look, I can. That that is a such a mob move right there, just to say, look, I bought you dinner, but you understand, I I know where you are, right? You know, just saying. Hey, you're a psychopath. <laughs> that, is, that is what you do to let somebody know I can reach you. In a time of fake news, fake politicians, and fake fiat currency. It's getting harder to find the genuine article. That's why when it comes to precious metals, I call the team I can trust. This is David Knight for my friends at Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Proudly veteran-owned and operated, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange is your home for gold and silver coins, bullion, jewelry, and more. Prices and inventory are updated daily, so you get the most competitive possible pricing. And when it's time to sell your gold and silver items, they pay top dollar. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange also accepts and deals in Bitcoin. Call or text the owner, Tony Arterburn, today at 888-667-1836. That's 888-667-1836. Or just go to wisewolf.gold. From bullion to Bitcoin, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Hi. This is Ron Paul. You're listening to the Donald Jeffrey Show. Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State understood these trends professionally for many years and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge 
WallStreetWindow.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. We have our guest. Uh, very, very honored to have uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and his co-author, John Leake. They've written a great new book, The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. Dr. McCullough is an internist, a cardiologist, epidemiologist, who is uh, obviously a, a real expert in this area, unlike most of us that, that spout off about this. Uh, he published Pathophysiological Basis and Rationale for Early Outpatient Treatment of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 Infection, uh, he's written for the American Journal of Medicine. He's been on tons and tons of bigger shows than this, so I'm, I'm very happy that he consented to come on with me. His co-author, John Leake, has written several books, including uh, The Courage to, uh, the um, Entering Hades, The Double Life of a Serial Killer. So very happy to have Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's start. A, you know, a, you guys can just bounce back and forth, or however you want to do it. But um, Dr. McCullough, obviously, you're eminently qualified <clears throat> to be discussing something like that. Unlike most of us that that write and talk about this. So, as a as someone in the field, uh, how did you get started down this path? Where maybe you started doubting at least the um, I don't know if you doubt something about the narrative, but you're certainly probably doubting the way it's been treated. So, how did you come to have the uh, position that you have now? I'm in my fourth decade of medicine. I'm continuously board certified in both internal medicine and cardiology. So I manage respiratory illnesses. I manage pneumonias of all different types. And when SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, hit, I immediately jumped into action and uh, did everything I could to treat patients with the goal of preventing hospitalization and death. The medicines became refined over time. I was advantaged in terms of doing research and analyses I published the very first protocol on how to use drugs in combination to prevent hospitalization and death, wrote the very first home patient treatment guide with the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. But what shocked me with all this medical progress is that my colleagues were not with me and other doctors and other hospitals and health systems never developed treatment clinics. They actually never did anything to help people prevent, avoid hospitalization and death. And then what we found out later on is that the government and so many other stakeholders were working against us? Oh, absolutely. So, John, how, how did you, how did you come together with Dr. McCullough and, and decide to write this book? I'm a true crime author, written books about a serial killer, a, guy, a mystery of a young man that disappeared, and trying to discover what happened to him. Both of my first books had strong forensic medical components, for which I consulted with pathologist and ended up reading a lot of medical literature. And so I've long been interested in the medical component of a mystery and specifically a criminal mystery. And so when SARS-CoV-2 arrived in the United States, I quickly perceived that what we were being told by our federal health authorities and by our mainstream media a lot of it just didn't add up to me. A lot of it just seemed implausible, if not if not downright dubious. And so I began to think something like a true crime is happening here, a crime with elements of mass, massive fraud, inflicting massive damage on our entire population, and elements with respect to 
the withholding of treatments, repurposed drugs. We, we explore a number of treatment modalities in our book. This, this deliberate withholding and maligning of these treatment modalities, in effect, to prevent people who could really get into trouble with this illness. And we were able, or Dr. McCullough and his colleagues, rather, were able to identify these groups who could get into trouble with this disease to treat them early and aggressively in order to prevent them from going to hospital. So as I began to conceptualize all of this, I began to think, well, this is something like a crime. Uh, I mean, the lawyers and the prosecutors can argue the finer points, but you know, at the very minimum, this rises to the level of negligent homicide. So I began to research it as a true crime story, but I knew I needed a top medical authority. And through a very kind of interesting and delightful twist and turn, I, I come across Dr. McCullough, who only is practically my neighbor. He only lives a couple of miles away from my family home in Dallas. So we, we got together. We joined forces a year ago and um, started working on a book together. And we've just come out with it, The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. We're getting good reviews. It's a bestseller on Amazon in multiple categories. Uh, I'm not much of a self-promoter, but if there was ever a time to promote our book, it's right now because it just came out. I hope your listeners will check it out. They can go to our website, Courage to Face COVID-19, and there's a portal to buy the book. Absolutely. You know, it's important. And there are more and more books are coming out. Uh, Naomi Wolf, and that's where I met Dr. McCullough uh, last week at Naomi Wolf's book launch parties for her uh, her own book, The Bodies of Others. So there are lots of important information uh, out there because this, this, this is bigger. And, and to you, I don't know what your politics were before this, Dr. McCullough, but this has become so politicized, the entire thing. I mean, keeping things like uh, hydroxychlorophene and ivermectin, which are legal substances, keeping them, you know, out of the hands of patients is just, I, it's just mind-boggling to me. Have you, is there any precedent for this? I mean, is, is, is it this all politicized? Yeah, there's absolutely no precedent for it. And it was carried to the extreme. Do you know there's a film clip somewhere in the upper Midwest where there was a family member trying to bring in some ivermectin to their loved one in the hospital. And the police were literally patting him down, trying to confiscate the ivermectin. We have a process in medical care called rec medication reconciliation, meaning that patients can take their home medications in the hospital. That's part of routine hospital management. But in COVID-19, uh, it was almost as if patients were put in prison where they couldn't even get home medicines. Family members couldn't see them. Yes, and yes. then they lost control of what happened to their bodies. It was absolutely tragic. Uh, remdesivir is the, uh, is the prima facie example of this, where remdesivir was tried in clinical trials. In fact, the largest trial by the WHO showed remdesivir resulted in more deaths, kidney failure, and liver damage. And so the World Health Organization held a consensus conference had all kinds of doctors and experts, as well as ethicists, and they declared in 2020 remdesivir should not be used in the hospital. The European Society of Critical Care agreed. 
Yet in America, American hospitals, critical care doctors, infectious disease doctors and administrators continued to give remdesivir because hospitals were getting the financial kicker from the government if they used remdesivir, despite it causing death, kidney damage and liver damage. Yeah, absolutely. And and they do. The, the financial interest is, is very real. And since, you know, the tragedy I talked before there and the, my audience knows all too well what happened to my brother. But uh, since I, I discovered he certainly wasn't alone, I heard from people all over the world that experienced the same type of things. And I had several of them on my show. In fact, that's where I started getting all the strikes on me on YouTube uh, because of that. But this is astounding because they're taking people that uh, are, are being denied things like ivermectin, what they want to use or the families want to use. And as you mentioned, the isolation is what's killing people because in the case of my brother, like the others, if you're quarantined, uh, you can't, especially when you have pe- My brother was very healthy, but he, uh, like a lot of old people that are the same way, they might have dementia, so they really can't be aware of what's going on. They need family members there to monitor them. And in my brother's case, he kind of was easily confused and easily fooled. So I, I needed to be there for him. And it's tragic that this is happening, that they're, uh, that they are treating well, it like a prison. So, 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 um, yeah, if I could just jump in right there, I mean, the, what you tell us about your brother and, and truly our condolences, I mean, I can't you. tell you in the course of my research, in interviews, how many times I've heard this story. I mean, yes. you always know that you always know that witness testimony um, bears weight and is significant and credible when dozens of independent witnesses who have never met each other, have never had cause to communicate with each other, are all telling you the exact same story. So you you know you know that that, that they're not misinterpreting things they're all seeing it and reporting it exactly the same so this is what would happen people would go to the hospital pursuant to the cares act of march 20 signed into law on march 26 2020 there were a host of incentives for admitting people to hospital doing absolutely nothing to care for them maybe supplemental oxygen Basically, a lot of these people were just stuck in an isolated room. Family wasn't allowed to to visit them. So social contact was completely eliminated. Even physicians didn't visit them. You know, the the, the only people, I, I shouldn't say the only, in the hospital setting, the most brave people were the nurses. Um, but we know from studies of placing people in, in effect solitary confinement it is the hardest psychologically. It is the hardest, most agonizing thing you can do to a human being. We're very, very social creatures. So it, it's like to put, just putting people in solitary confinement. They're frightened. They, they think that they're dying. And you're, you're giving them no help, no assistance. And then per the NIH guideline... You start administering remdesivir, which <clears throat> impairs kidney function. So there is a 20% bonus add-on paid out by the yes. Medicare and Medicaid um, in order to use this. It's just like a 20% tip on the entire full freight hospital bill. I mean, this when you, 
I think when your audience reads this book, they'll almost just not be able to believe it. I mean, as I was researching it and discussing it and reviewing it with Dr. McCullough and, and corroborating reports and evidence, I mean, oftentimes I just thought, I just can't believe this. I mean, this is a massive crime. And I think that the public is is still not fully awakened to what's happened here. No. We are hoping that, that our book, because we've really taken pains to make it readable, uh, among other things, um, you can get on an airplane in Tampa to fly to Dallas on business and read a great chunk of it, that you know this story, the narrative, will enable people to understand what has happened here. Um, I mean, it's there will be an awakening. The, the country will ultimately understand this. We know from studying history that ultimately people figure it out. The question is how long is it going to take and how much damage is going to be continuously inflicted in the interim. Absolutely. Oh, and just look at you mentioned the loneliness factor. I mean, how many do we even know how many old people in nursing homes died? I mean, in New York State alone, the scandal that the, the Cuomo appears to have avoided any punishment for. But this happened. Uh, who knows how many? One of the great tragedies is how many old people died without uh, being able to see their great grandkids or whatever. It's just it's just tragic that we don't know how many that. Yeah, the, the- the, the, the nursing home the nursing home scandal in New York City is something we examine in, in, in great detail in, in a book of, in, a, in a chapter about New York. Again, you know, as you look at the art, the narrative arch of the story and the details of the story, it's just beyond belief. I mean, you think, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Um, it's it's so outlandishly bizarre, and um, you know. Cuomo was was come January, February, March of, of 2021, the Attorney General of New York, the FBI, a federal um, prosecutor in New York, uh, I can't remember which district, you know, they opened up inquiries into this nursing home scandal. I mean, there was a criminal inquiry afoot, and right as the story you know, that this is being looked into by law enforcement hits the news wires at precisely the same time, suddenly a bunch of ladies come forth and say, well, you know, the governor touched me inappropriately in a, in a sort of sexual way. So we, we see a, an astonishing changing of the subject from an inquiry that, would, that could re- result in, in criminal liability for the state of New York. Suddenly, the, the subject is changed to sexual harassment, you know, on, on the governor's staff. Um, so, again, just it, the the New York story is emblematic, and perhaps the sort of crown, the, the the summit of absurdity of of this this entire fiasco. Um, and you know, again. Hopefully the American citizens, the good, the good, prudent citizenry of this country is going to realize, you know, just this, the, the psychopathic clown show, um, you know, that, that has been in an executive position in, in many of our states. Oh, that's a good that's a good way to put it. Uh, 
And I, 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 people have told me that uh, the hospital probably made around $100,000 on my brother's death. That's about the average they make between the bonus they get for remdesivir, the $13,000 uh, they get for every uh, positive test for COVID and what, what 90 plus percent pulse positive rate that they admit. Go ahead, Dr. McCall. Pardon me. Yeah, Pardon I was going to was gonna pick up on this. Remdesivir is an IV infusion. You know, we give it over five doses over five days. It's not unlike giving another antibiotic like uh, genomycin or ticarcillin or what have you. We never get a 20% tip or bonus on the entire hospital stay yes. because we use a certain antibiotic. Yeah. I mean, that's a perverse incentive. Remdesivir doesn't deserve that. There was something uh, that's very diabolical in positioning remdesivir to be used in the United States when the World Health Organization said, don't use it. Um, that should yeah. alarm Americans. And I want to say something about nursing homes. I have uh, uh, family members in nursing homes, and it's really close to me. There's a chapter in the book, actually, about my dad in nursing homes. Yes, yes. Do you know that there were humanitarian crises reported all over the world? One was in Quebec where there was a nursing home outbreak, and the family members brought ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. They were desperate to try to get some medicine to their family members, and they would not be allowed to penetrate the perimeter of the nursing home, and sadly, their relatives died. Do you know elsewhere where legal euthanasia was performed, particularly in Netherlands and Scandinavia? If this was a, a horrific yeah. time for nursing homes, and during the beginning of the pandemic, we heard about nursing home outbreaks, it was well publicized about nursing home spread from workers to patients. That's actually how my dad got it, from a worker to my dad in a nursing home. But, you know, after the nursing home outbreaks, the media turned its attention away from the nursing homes. I have not seen a nursing home report on COVID in over a year. The focus in the news cycle now has been incessantly on children and, in fact, vaccinating children, which is the least of our concern because the high-risk patients have always been seniors in those in nursing homes. Right. Well, of course, when it comes to the, the big thing, obviously, is, is the warp speed vaccine and the untested vaccine and the fact that uh, I think uh, there's so many cover-ups going on here, but we don't even know how many people. What, what, I mean, as a doctor, aren't you alarmed? The insurance companies, uh, in a very kind of underreported story over this year, were saying, hey, you know, the, the death rate for people 18 to 65 has gone up 40, went up 40% in, in uh, 2021. That's, I, I don't know that that's ever happened in the history of the world. People are, we're, they were dying at an unprecedented rate. The life expectancy rate has gone down several years in a row. As a doctor, what do you, I mean, that, that doesn't seem to make sense with the technology we seem to have. Why is this happening? Well, we can talk about mortality trends since, you know, our book focuses on suppression of early treatment and the role of early treatment as well as high-quality hospital treatment in COVID-19. We have data from 2019 before COVID and then 2020, and it turned out mortality from 19 to 20 didn't change much. There was a shifting in attribution of mortality from non-COVID diagnoses to covid so yeah. we know that there was an over-attribution, and our CDC has said 90% of people who died with COVID had at least one other contributing yes, illness. Yes. 75% had four or more contributing illnesses. Now, I, 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 I am not saying that coding of, for COVID was wrong because 
people, even if they're at the end of their life, they deserve as much time as they have. And they certainly deserve to see their family members and, and say their last goodbyes. That was all robbed from them during the era of COVID, even if they didn't have it. There are people who died in nursing homes because they were locked down. Uh, and I've had uh, my dad has been under forms of lockdown now for over two years. It's been torture to be in solitary confinement for such a long period of time as a nursing home patient. It's absolutely a tragedy when he's already been through COVID. He, you know, he, 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 mm-hmm. he should have a complete freedom in the nursing home. But what we know in mortality is that from 2019 to 2020, it was flat, but there was just difference, differences in attribution. The big change was in 2021, as you pointed out. There... Yeah. There was excess mortality, partly due to COVID, and that's coming out in the CDC Wonder System and in the report from the U.S. Uh, uh, actuaries. But a large fraction of the all-cause mortality is not COVID. And the only thing that's changed, and this is among employed people and largely uh, people who have life insurance, are people who are employed. That they get life insurance through their employment. So right. what's happening is, People who were employed for large employers who have who offer life insurance, there's a 40% excess in deaths, a small fraction of that is due to COVID respiratory illness. The only thing that explains that is the COVID-19 vaccines. Absolutely. And I know there's only a couple minutes where John has to leave us. John, do you want to take the last few minutes before you have to leave to say whatever you want to say? Yeah, uh, thanks again for having me. Greetings to all, all of your uh, your listeners. Thanks for listening. Um what, what I want to suggest is that everyone who's listening, whether they buy our book or not, uh, recognize, as Dr. McCullough and I have, that what the American people and I think all of humanity um, have, have faced for the last, what, how many years? Over two years now, two years and about three months, um, is a, <clears throat> a crime against humanity. And with multiple uh, criminal elements that we explore in our book, we also explore the motive for this. The the focus of the book is the suppression of early treatment, but we touch on the motive in this book, which is the rapid deployment, development, deployment, and, and mandatory requirement that every man, woman, and child on Earth receive a COVID vaccine. Um, we, we believe that this suppression of early treatment, many of these, these public health measures were actually imposed in order to intensify the crisis, to amplify the fear, um, in order to prepare a sort of massive psyop, as the intelligence services call it, in order to psychologically prepare the population to receive these new genetic transfer technology injections. Um, so, uh, I again, thank you for having me. I'm sorry I've got to bail out. Um, the, the good doctor will, I'm sure, as he always does, patiently answer every question. And uh, thank you, and I bid you guys a good night. Thank you, John Lake. Thanks for, again, co-author of the book with uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, and we'll be talking more about that. Um, so, Dr. McCullough, as, as a, you know, a lot of us speculate that we, we know what we've heard about this warp speed vaccine, and, and there's obviously a lot to criticize about it. Uh, the uh, the heart disease we're seeing even in children, so many horrible side effects and probably wildly underreported the deaths from it. As you said, there's nothing else. There's no other wild card to explain the increased deaths. As a medical man, 
what what do you know about the vaccine and what what were you worried about when you first heard about it? And obviously, you're probably even more worried after people have been taking it for a couple of years now. Yeah, I wrote one of the introductions for Peter Bregan's foundational book called COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We are the prey. Now, that book has a thousand citations. It's, it's not a it's not a narrative like ours, but it's actually a pure kind of medical fact book. But I think everyone should be disturbed that Stefan Bainzel, who's the CEO of Moderna, he knows China pretty well. And you know why? Because he's the former CEO of Biomilieu. Biomilieu is the French company that helped the, the Chinese build the biosecurity uh, level four annex to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Banzel was actually helping the Chinese build the lab. He resigns from being CEO of Biomilieu, and five days later, he's the CEO of Moderna. Moderna only has one employee when he joins it. How can he leave a multi-billion-dollar conglomerate and then join a one-employee operation, and the U.S. federal government owns half of the patent royalties to the Moderna vaccine, which was already in the works against SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, before the virus ever got out of the lab. So there was coordination. This is documented. This is nailed down. There was coordination in planning for the virus to be made more lethal, more infectious, and then a vaccine to address the virus long before it ever got out of the lab. And in our book, we chronicle that, you know, this crisis starts in the United States, and then it was by early March, Moderna has announced that they already have clinical trials started with their vaccine. How can you develop a vaccine in a matter of a couple of days? There's yes. no way. They had this planned out over years. Well, you they mentioned planned this out over years. Well, you mentioned in your book, you, you talked about the drill from 2019 sponsored by the Bill Gates Foundation. I mean, this, this is what causes people to, you know, become conspiracy theorists. What, what was that drill about? It was basically planning for just what happened. It's all in the open. So Event 201 was a planning uh, exercise sponsored by the Gates Foundation for exactly what would happen, that there would be a coronavirus, it was going to be let out, uh, the people were going to be locked down and held in fear, and then uh, a mass vaccination was going to happen. In 2017, there was Johns Hopkins had a planning seminar. Yeah. It was called the SPARS pandemic. And they said it's going to be a coronavirus. It's going to be related to MERS and SARS. And in fact, what we're going to do is we are going to harness social media, the federal government, mainstream media, and we are going to railroad a vaccine on the population. And there's a way to do it. So they were planning on doing this in 2017. This is on Johns Hopkins website. They ultimately published two peer-reviewed papers in 2020 saying, listen, we had planned this out. In fact, they did. Event 201 planned by the Gates Foundation, everything's in the open. The point is in the Bregan book, everything is in the open. This was planned. It was executed. There had to be suppression of early treatment in order to prepare the population for mass vaccination. And, and all treatment, by the way, is suppressed. So even the emergency use authorized monoclonal antibodies, which are safe and effective, the monoclonal antibodies came out before the vaccine. Even they have been suppressed. Every time the virus mutates, the federal government has pulled these off the market. 
Well, if, if, if the virus mutates and they're pulling monoclonal antibodies off the market, why don't they pull the vaccines off the market? But no, the vaccines are kept on the market and pushed incessantly, and yet we're scrambling for monoclonal antibodies. That's what Joe Rogan and I talked about the most in my Joe Rogan interview, which set all the records all time for his podcast, mm-hmm. is we talked about monoclonal antibodies. I use them every day in my practice. Joe received them. So did former President Trump. So did Governor Abbott. So did quarterback Aaron Rodgers. They're great products. And you know what I'd say to you? That if I was in the emergency room with COVID right now, or my dad was in the emergency room, I would demand that that, that patient receive monoclonal antibodies before they ever go into the hospital. Because I would the re, re, monoclonal antibodies blow away remdesivir, hands down. Remdesivir doesn't help people. It hurts them. Monoclonal antibodies in every single study show that they're safe and effective. They're like miracle drugs. And sadly, people are in the hospital, in the ER, they're denied monoclonal antibodies, they're railroaded into the hospital, and they're given remdesivir. It's a tragedy. No, it definitely is. And But as, as someone, you know, maybe you can explain it because you're obviously a medical person, you're an expert in this area. As a layman, I've been harping on the subject that I, I don't I don't understand much about viruses, but I do know that uh, COVID-19 was named COVID-19 because it was the 2019 strain of the yearly coronavirus that comes around in the fall, flu season, if you will. And throughout human history, I thought as a layman that these viruses burn down in the heat. Come spring, they're gone. And then next next fall, you should have had COVID-20 and then COVID-21. Why are we still calling it COVID? How is this virus still here? And how does it keep reoccurring and having waves and everything in the summer? Has there any been any other virus? Again, I'm a layman. I don't know. But my impression is that uh, these things are supposed to burn out in the heat. Am I not right here? The virus is called SARS-CoV-2, so it's a modified coronavirus. It's an intentionally modified coronavirus. And Senator Rand Paul has been on this with our director of the National Allergy Immunology Branch. And I think it's pretty clear in Senate testimony that it was intentionally manipulated through research that went through the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, Ralph Barrick was the uh, principal investigator, the EcoHealth Alliance, a go-between, and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, what was the U.S. doing? funding research in a bioterrorism lab in Wuhan, China. But it was going on. And it's pretty clear, it's all in the Senate record, that it was going on. So this virus isn't natural. It's not one that burns out in the summer, as you pointed out. The other thing that's very unnatural is to lock down population. Yes, So this yes. is the first time we ever locked down population. So we kept large pockets of susceptible people. And to make matters worse, now we've mass vaccinated against it with a set of vaccines that don't sterilize, uh, they don't prevent transmission, they don't change the viral load in the nasal passages. And so now we've created a super unnatural environment and this virus is having a picnic. It is going from susceptible population to susceptible population in wave after wave and it's all because we made it worse ourselves. Everything we've done has backfired and made the pandemic worse, particularly mass vaccination. Uh, we have a question for you here. A listener wants to know, uh, what about the conflict between the PR campaign, between what the Pfizer Vax does and their own research? Pfizer's house is on fire. Pfizer has a set assumption that it's safe and effective without any proof, without any proof whatsoever. What happened was 
is a lawsuit was filed by lead attorney Aaron Siri and co-counsel Elizabeth Brown that said, we want to see what Pfizer knows. Since America is being forced to take these vaccines, America should see what the FDA and Pfizer saw. So Pfizer, under pressure, had a lawsuit on their hands. And the lawyer for the FDA did not want to release Pfizer documents for 55 years. So the U.S. FDA did not want America to see what was in the Pfizer folders. And when the data was finally released, we knew the reason why. Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths with the Pfizer vaccine within 90 days of its release. That's stunning. Yeah. Typically, any new product, when it's first released, if you get to 50 deaths, they pull it off the market. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's either the manufacturing is wrong, it's contaminated, something's wrong. And Pfizer didn't tell anybody. There was, there was no disclosure. The FDA didn't tell anybody. They kept it on the market. They kept giving it to people, even though people were dying. Uh, Pfizer reported 1,291 new diseases that were caused by the vaccine, special adverse events of interest. It's a horror show. It's an yeah. absolute horror show in the Pfizer documents released. And so at this point in time, Albert Borla, who is the CEO of Pfizer, he's going on TV telling people to take third and fourth shots. And he's somebody who makes money, obviously, <laughs> when selling vaccines, and he's not getting up there and addressing the, the, the safety debacle with Pfizer. We have a new chairman of the FDA. He hasn't said a word about it. Right, so, well, and you have you have uh, things that when you talk about Remdesivir, we know that uh, Anthony Fauci has a vested financial interest in that. And I believe Donald Trump does as well. So you have powerful forces here. And uh, as you said, they, they should have taken this vaccine off the market very early on. It's already I think what maybe in the first month it caused more deaths. And that was their figures, which are probably almost certainly underreported than all the combined vaccines since 1901. And yet, why do you think, I mean, we know the mainstream media covers up so many things, but the medical community, it just astonishes me that uh, there's not, thank goodness for people like you and, and so many other doctors, Gunther Fulmich and many others I've had on my show before that are courageous enough to speak up. But why do you think, why are so many people going along with this? Because they have to know, especially medical people, that this this is not right here. And that, you know, certainly, especially in something like the vaccine, what, why are we, and if you protest it, I know from just, you know, on YouTube, it gets, or Twitter, it gets labeled medical misinformation and you get, you get, it gets deleted or you get banned. What are they, they don't want any discussion of this. They just call it medical misinformation. It's just, it's just amazing to me. Well, in the Johns Hopkins planning seminar in 2017, and then the event 201, funded by the Gates Foundation in 2019, they said they were going to railroad vaccines on the population no matter what. It was said. Th there was no mention of review of safety. And when these were released, there was no safety review. Our NIH and CDC, which are running the program, that's a giant mistake. Our FDA should be a safety watchdog. Our FDA should not be running the clinical program. Our CDC is supposed to be investigating outbreaks. They're not supposed to be running the clinical program. Do you know the vaccine program has no data safety monitoring board, has no human ethics board? There is no control over safety. Pfizer had 1,223 deaths. They actually had to hire 600 people just to, just to man the phone lines as people were dying of Pfizer, and it was covered yeah. up. This is one yeah. of the biggest pharmaceutical crimes of all time. Now, the question is, how can people go along with it? 
people have used the analogy of Nazi Germany. How could so many doctors go along with the gas chambers? Right. They were complicit in it. And it has to do with what's called mass formation. The doctors are thought to be in what's called mass formation psychosis. They're in a form of a trance where they are pushing the vaccine on patients and patients are dying of the vaccine. It's absolutely agony. And I think so much of it is too, like people told me with my brother that, oh, you think the hospital, I, I don't think the hospital conspired to purposely kill him or anyone, but their protocol is killing people. And they're, they're taking, in, my, in his case, healthy people and killing them in two weeks, which is not easy to do. And uh, they're, but they're, they're not recognizing this. And I think, is, is it just because uh, in your profession, especially, they trust so much in what they're told is the science and they trust the protocol that the, the AMA and you know, the CDC and the WHO, they wouldn't be telling us to do this if it was wrong. Is it just kind of that they have faith? I think you're right. I think they have faith. A lot of it's driven out of fear. Uh, they have stopped critical thinking. Uh, do you know that every single major medical society endorses vaccination despite the lack of long-term safety assurances? Do you know the American College yeah. of Gynecology recommends vaccination of pregnant women? This yeah. is, these are genetic transfer technology products. Yeah. We have no assurances that they don't cause birth defects, cancers, that they don't uh, change fertility. We have no assurance of this at all. The FDA and the vaccine companies excluded pregnant women from clinical trials for a reason. Yeah. They knew yeah. it wasn't safe. And yet the American College of Sexism and Gynecology is pushing the vaccine on pregnant women. We've never seen this before. It's as if the medical yeah. uh, groups and the doctors have lost their minds. Yeah, and there's and it's it's there's so many and you know not only I lost my brother but right now a situation in my family and I've been canceled by most of my family because I'm I'm just my myself and my kids are the only ones that are not vaccinated in the family very large family and uh, we've already been you know not allowed to go to a wedding uh, some people didn't come to my brother's funeral because we weren't vaccinated I mean it's just it's a mess it's what's happening all over this country and the world but there's somebody I'm not going to say specifically who it is but there's a baby in our family. Who I haven't even seen yet because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not vaccinated. But he has a very strange, and I don't think you saw these things before the vaccine. I am convinced, of course, they're not going to listen to me. That is because his mother was vaccinated, and probably I think she was vaccinated when she was pregnant. But he has this string, and they've done tests. He was he's been in children's hospital everywhere. They can't figure out he won't eat anything. He won't take anything. He won't even drink water. And uh, they, they've done all these tests. And I, I just say, I, I don't think you used to hear that kind of stuff, especially they couldn't diagnose. But I think it's just one of these many bizarre side effects to the vaccines. It's hard to say. I, I think it should be clear to everybody that pregnancy is a God-given, natural, super immune state. Pregnant women have better outcomes, even if they get COVID, than non-pregnant women. That was shown in papers by um uh, by Pinellas and Winkies, that the best way for a pregnant woman to be healthy is to keep this stuff out of their body. They shouldn't be taking any experimental medicines. Pregnant women should not be taking the genetic code for a lethal Chinese protein. This should be common sense. And a pregnant right. woman should not take the experimental genetic code for a lethal Chinese protein. Sure. I, mean, I, I can't say it more clearly. Pregnant women don't drink a drop of alcohol. How right. in the world yeah. would a pregnant woman who has any type of mind in her body 
accept the Chinese genetic code. I mean, in her body by injection. I mean, it's astonishing that any pregnant woman would do that. It's as if people have lost their minds. But I think what what I said about the medical community certainly holds true for the public at large because uh, I, I've given up on trying to talk to family members, whatever, because they're like in the case of my brother, you know, the cause of death was COVID. He died because he wasn't vaccinated. Basically, it's my fault because he didn't get vaccinated. That's what you know. That's what I hear or through you know they insinuate that. But uh, that that's so they have faith in that. They don't look beyond that and. They believe what they're told, and so they think this is uh, just an incredible plague, and they're trying their best. And I mean, what can you say? Have we ever had a situation where people have gotten, what, three, four vaccines for the same thing, boosters, and they still get the disease? And I've heard the explanation. I'm sure you have as well. Well, you know, Fauci or somebody will say, well, it would have been even worse if they hadn't gotten well, it. It's like, you know, what? There's, there's a meme, you know, there's a meme out there where a guy gets COVID and he dies. And he said, thank goodness I got my vaccine. It could have been worse. But the point is, is that people have lost their minds. The vaccines are only indicated clinically to try to prevent COVID in somebody who has not had COVID. That's how the clinical trials are set up. That's how the emergency use authorization happened. That's the only use of the vaccines. They've been never proven in randomized trials to reduce hospitalization and death. In fact, Pfizer in the randomized trials resulted in more death than placebo. So vaccines under no circumstances can be thought to reduce the risk of hospitalization or death. In fact, it's just the opposite. They probably make things worse. Now, having said that, former President Obama recently had a lecture at Stanford who was, got three shots and he got COVID. He was castigating the unvaccinated. He said the unvaccinated <laughs> are putting their families at risk because they could get COVID. Well, he just had it himself, and he was triple vaxxed. He put his family at risk. Yeah. Do you see how he's basically lost his mind? Another example is Anderson Cooper, triple vaxxed, Bill Gates, quadruple vaxxed. They both get COVID together. And then Anderson's asking Bill Gates for medical advice, which is a mistake. Bill Gates is <laughs> not a doctor. He doesn't have yes. the authority that I have. And, and and Anderson says, well, Bill, we've already had COVID. Are we done now? Do, you know, do we need to take any more shots? And Gates thinks about it and he goes, well, yeah, to be safe, we should continue taking more shots. <laughs> we never give ourselves vaccines every six months to prevent a problem uh, once yes. we've already had the problem. Right. People have lost their minds. Let me give you one more example of people losing their minds. Uh, look at some newsreels over in China, in Shanghai, China. They have basically locked each other down to the point where they're running out of food. They're killing each other's pets. They're dressed up in hazmat suits, beating each other up on the streets. Uh, there's a newsreel where a guy in a hazmat suit is spraying another guy's shoes. Well, let me tell you, I've taken care of hundreds and hundreds of COVID patients. I've advised on thousands. We don't wear hazmat suits. They're not needed. It doesn't spread that way. And let me tell you something else. COVID doesn't come out of people's shoes. You don't need to spray people's shoes. I can tell you, people have lost their minds. Obama yes. has lost his mind. Anderson Cooper, Bill Gates, I hate to say it, but probably your family members, they've yeah. lost their minds oh, in terms have. of being able to rationally think their way through this. And that, and that's one, that's just one byproduct. That's, that's uh, you know, certainly the, the tragedy is, is of whatever this is itself, and however many deaths have happened through COVID or the vaccine or whatever, but... The, the families that have been for, I don't know how your family feels. I, I, I would ask you that. And most people I talk to, I guess, especially, 
you being a doctor and everything, I hope you had the support of your family. But most of the people I talk to uh, don't have at least the full support. How has your family responded to you becoming outspoken on this subject? You know, my family, like all others, is fractured on this. Yes, yes. Some have a clear vision. They clearly understand something's wrong. The, the, the government narrative doesn't make sense. You know, they're healthy. And they know taking the genetic code for the Chinese lethal protein doesn't make you healthier. Anybody should understand that. You don't take a foreign shot of genetic code in your body to make you healthier. Yet other family members have taken shot after shot without really any critical thinking. We ask them, what are you doing? They said, well, I want to protect others or I want to protect myself. Well, saying, hey, did you ask what's in these shots? Did you actually ask what's in them? You know, it's not only is it, is it really disturbing to think that these are lipid nanoparticles with synthetic messenger RNA or the genetic code for the Wuhan spike protein out of the biosecurity lab in China. But on top of that, the messenger RNA doesn't break down. It's been found in the lymph nodes two months later. The spike protein has been found in the body over a year later. You're taking a shot of something that doesn't get out of the human body. And to make matters worse, these are not even manufactured very well. Do you know that millions of doses have been returned to both Pfizer and Moderna because there's there's debris in it. There's been metal debris and other yeah, other yeah. contaminants in there. You know, these are you know people have to re-examine what in the world are they taking into their body. Uh, these are emergency use authorized. They've never been given full approval. There's no disclosure of the safety information. Uh, insurance companies are not buying them. Nobody wants them. The whole world is protesting against them. Employers are forcing people into them. Uh, listen, if these things were so good, people wouldn't be protesting against them. We wouldn't right. have to have band-aids for them. Do you know what right. I mean? It should be obvious when you look at the totality of evidence that these are very, very bad medical products. Very and bad it, medical products. And, and, and it's the whole basic thing we've uh, that I've said many times, and there's no answer, and I'm sure you've heard it too, is that, if the whole point of getting vaccinated is to protect you, so why do you care if someone else is? Aren't you protected? But obviously you're not. If you're, as you said, somebody like Obama is getting four shots and then still, and they still blame the unvaccinated. I don't, it's just, uh, but that, again, that's not science. It's, I mean, as I understand it, I mean, isn't what is the point of getting a vaccine if it doesn't protect you from the disease, and more importantly, it doesn't protect you from those who don't get it. Right. So there's papers, one by Chow, uh, Acharyan, Rhymerisma, Acorsi. They all show that someone like Obama, triple vaxxed, when he gets COVID, he's just a threat, just as much of a threat to his family member, family, as an unvaccinated person who gets COVID. They're the same. So being triple vaxxed, he's just as, as much of a threat as somebody who's unvaxxed. And for him as the former president of the United States to get up in front of a crowd and say that the unvaccinated are somehow more of a threat in a pejorative way is it's just pure propaganda. So there's a former yeah. president of the United States, a popular president who's basically spewing propaganda. He's spewing yeah. basically medical lies, whether you're vaccinated or not. You're equally as likely to get COVID. You transmit it equally as well. You're just as infectious. The vaccines don't stop transmission. Our CDC director has said that. 
you'd think Obama would be at least in line with our CDC director. Our CDC director says the vaccines don't stop transmission. Why would he get up in front of a group of people and basically lie? Why wouldn't he follow the CDC directions? See, what you're hearing through this interview is you're hearing a series of incredible inconsistencies. Our CDC director says one thing. Our former president says something else. The World Health Organization says don't use remdesivir. The hospital that took care of your brother gave remdesivir. I mean, we, over and over again in this pandemic, there are gross inconsistencies with what's going on. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a whole school of thought. I'm sure I don't know if it's I don't know whether there's any validity to it or not, but there's lots of people that believe that those who are vaccinated are actually more of a threat to the unvaccinated and vice versa because they're shedding. Have you heard that theory that the people that are vaccinated are actually more dangerous than the unvaccinated? Well, it's possible by taking a vaccine that the symptoms may be more concealed. No one's actually proven this yet. But let's say you've been vaccinated, but the symptoms are more concealed. That means you can go around and spread it to a lot more people than someone who's unvaccinated who can recognize the symptoms promptly and get into quarantine. So it is true that once populations are vaccinated, the whole infection gets worse and there's more cases and more spread. And there's three analyses that show that. One is uh, BD, Acanth, and Subramanian. So we're talking, it's a real disaster. You know, vaccination has made the problem way worse through a whole variety of mechanisms. It promoted resistant strains of the virus that get around the vaccine, is promoting uh, a, a problem called antibody-dependent enhancement. In some patients, COVID is way worse. That's the reason why the majority of people in the hospital are dying in Canada, the UK, South Africa, the EU, and Australia, they're fully vaccinated. There was a report from the Australian New South Wales Health Authority that like 97 out of 98 people who died of COVID were fully vaccinated. I mean, you couldn't get a worse report. Mm. <laughs> Unbelievable. And our, now our, you know, the, and the, the fallout from this can, can be really... Uh, Mind-blowing. Our mutual friend, Naomi Wolf, and, you know, I met you at uh, last week at the, at the book launch party there, and she has a new book out as well. And she, she wrote the foreword to one of my books, Survival of the Riches. So I've known her for a while, but she has changed her thinking. And she wrote, I, I write on Substack, and she writes on Substack, and she wrote something this week called Rethinking the Second Amendment. And she basically talked about getting death threats, and that has changed her thinking about guns. And this is because basically what she's talking about, she's spreading this medical misinformation. She see somebody that was once respectable. Uh, you take a stance on this issue and boy, they, they just come after you. You know, it, it's, uh, it's sad to see uh, those types of developments. And like Naomi Wolf, I, you know, I formerly was much more of a, a centrist, uh, but I have moved closer to the right now because of the issue of medical freedom and those on the right tend to be uh, yes. more closely aligned with defending medical freedom than the left. The left has really almost become uh, a party uh, promoting the loss of civil liberties and promoting a totalitarian yes. approach to things. Now, I can tell you as a medical authority, I was out there uh, in front of everybody, including Naomi Wolf and anybody you can think of as uh, really the first medical authority in the country to say that we should treat patients with COVID-19 to prevent hospitalization and death. I was the lead 
in the U.S. Uh, Senate testimony in the fall of 2020. I was lead for the whole country. And, and since that time, and in our book, The Courage to Face COVID-19, it does chronicle what's happened to me in my career, which has been systematically dismantled because of this. Through this entire process, I have never had a single person confront me face-to-face and say that they disagree with me, uh, that they have a different viewpoint, that they want to have a discussion. Not a single person. I have not even had a single bad email. So how this is occurring, it's occurring by uh, uh, quietly by certified letter, and it's occurring by uh, anonymous, uncredentialed fact-checkers on the Internet. Absolutely. I can tell you, People, I told Joe Rogan this, the truth is like kryptonite. People are afraid to even come close to me because the truth is that penetrating. They would melt in front of me, confronted with the truth. And you know, Steve Kirsch knows it. Steve Kirsch, he started the Vaccine Injury Fund as well as the Early Achievement Fund. Steve Kirsch offered a million doctors for any doctor to come forward and defend the vaccines in a round table. Nobody showed up. And then he said 2 million. Then he said 5 million. Then he said 10 million. Does anybody in America truly believe these vaccines are safe and effective? And I can tell you, not for $10 million, not a single doctor will come forward and defend these vaccines. That should tell you something. Absolutely, certainly should. And uh, my producer said it happened to his oldest son after the vaccine, he couldn't digest anything. Uh, this is, you know, this has been wonderful. I want to. We only have a very little bit of time left. I want to. I want to ask you first of all, how how do you see this playing out? Do you think that uh, enough of us will ever get to the point where we do regain our uh, medical freedom, which really infringes on our civil liberties? And uh, do you think they're just going to keep locking us down? Are we going to get wave after wave of this, or at some point, is, are more of the public going to wake up and take off their masks and say we're not going to take it anymore? The New York Times, the day you and I were in Washington for Naomi Wolf's book signing, the New York Times the next day had an article, upper right-hand corner of the front page. It said 35% of Americans either won't take the vaccine or won't take boosters. That's the number. Yeah. 35% of Americans have said, listen, I've had enough. And I think that should, that should tell you. And I think that 35% is going to grow. There was a recent uh, Texas A&M survey, anonymous, of doctors and ask doctors, do you really think the vaccines are safe and effective? 10% of doctors said, no, they're not safe and effective. Now, 10% of doctors don't have the courage to step out and say that or fairly present that to their patients. But that's the number, and that 10% will grow. You may want to ask, why are doctors more easily fooled than other groups? And I think it's because doctors initially had more fear. Doctors saw some reports out of Italy where doctors had died when they ran out of uh, masks and personal protective equipment with sick patients. The other thing is when they rolled out the vaccine program, they went to doctors first, even before the nursing homes. They actually vaccinated doctors before nursing home (laughs) patients. And so it created a kind of doctor uh, fraternity in taking the vaccine. And I'll never forget uh, when the vaccines rolled out to my hospital, uh, you know, I had been working uh, treating COVID for, for uh, gosh, you know, about nine months. By the time the vaccines rolled out, uh, I was um, dealing with all different types of issues. I already had big research grants, published papers on COVID. 
I already had COVID myself. And I got an email and a text message, Dr. McCullough, are you going to come out in the lobby and get your vaccine? I said, no, I've already had COVID. It's too late to get the vaccine. Remember, the vaccines are only indicated if you haven't had COVID. And someone says, well, maybe you should go get one anyway. I go, no, we just don't get something for extra good luck. It's the genetic code for the Wuhan spike protein, which we were quickly learning is lethal. I'm not going to take the genetic code for the lethal spike protein just for the heck of it. There's just no way. There's Absolutely. no way. I mean, that, cas- that, that casual um, inference that, hey, Dr. McCullough, why don't you just kind of do it anyway for the team? It's like, there's no way. It's my body. <laughs> it's my choice. My body, my choice. Genetic code going in it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I, again, you're, you're a real profile in courage. I really appreciate people like you that are speaking out against this really uh, medical tyranny. And it's uh, it's wonderful that you're doing this. Yeah, tell the people that uh, where they can find you, promote anything you want to promote, uh, and then uh, we'll be signing off. Okay. Well, you know, I worked hard on social media. I'm a doctor, so I'm older, so I'm not that good on social media compared to the kids listening. But if you go to Peter McCullough, MD is my link tree. Linktree is a way of linking up all your social media. And you can find me on Instagram at Peter McCullough MD and at Truth Social, Peter McCullough MD. Truth Social, by the way, is the only platform that'll uh, certify me. Despite me giving my driver's mm. license and stuff to all the platforms, they refuse to certify me. Uh, on Twitter, I'm, I'm P underscore McCullough MD. And then, uh, most importantly, for the book, and I think everybody really needs to get the book, John Leake is so humble. You know, he's a bestseller. It's the only book written by a full-time best-selling author, which is what he does. He's a mm-hmm. full-time author. And it's called Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and Deaths While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. It is 309 pages, and it is fast reading. It is a page-turner yes. because it's a story, and it's really fun to read. Uh, it's written at a level that's very readable, and it tells the readers not only what happened to me, but so many other people along the line, all the people who I met. You know, I met Tucker Carlson and Joe Rogan and all these different people that came into my life, Eric Clapton, on and on and on. And uh, uh, and it's an interesting story. And I think everybody should, should get the book and read it. it. I think it's only about $15 on Amazon. But also, you know, it's probably the best Christmas present you're ever going to give to your relatives who are still kind of brainwashed. They're brainwashed into what's going on right now. And it's not an anti-vax book. It really is talking about the suppression of early treatment, how all this came together. And it would give those who really have bought into the vaccines an idea about what's going on with treatment. So remember, when someone who's vaccinated, when they still get sick with COVID, they still have the same issues. Treatment is suppressed. They're still getting remdesivir. They're still... Do you see what I mean? Yeah. You're still being denied treatment, even if you're taking the vaccine. So even if you're taking the vaccine, you still should be concerned that we're not offering the optimal treatment to patients in America. Absolutely. And the book, the name of the book, again, is The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex by John Leake and Peter A. McCullough, MD. So Dr. McCullough, again, thank you so much. Uh, keep up the great work. And uh Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to The Donald Jeffrey Show.